The following message was given by Jim Donahue, a pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, and a guest preacher at Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read in verse 35, but I want to start with a story. In the winter of 1925, a small Alaskan town called Nome, which is situated on the edge of the Arctic Circle, found itself on the brink of an unimaginable crisis. An outbreak of diphtheria threatened to wipe out the entire community of 1,400 people. Nome's lone physician, Curtis Welch, feared that if the infection spread, it could destroy the surrounding communities, totaling 10,000 people. The outbreak began in December 1924 when Welch saw what he thought were cases of tonsillitis. But when the number of cases grew and children began to drop dead, he feared the worst. Diphtheria is a highly contagious bacterial disease that attacks the respiratory system. Fortunately, a cure was available, an antitoxin. The problem was that the antitoxin was almost 700 miles away. And there was no way for a boat to get there because all the harbors were frozen over. And there was no way for a plane to get there because there were only open cockpit planes. The only way to get it there was by dog sled. The U.S. Post Office recruited their best dog sled teams, a total of 20, and positioned them along the route. The entire route ordinarily took the Postal Service 25 days to cover, but Dr. Welch couldn't wait that long because the serum only lasted six days and people were dying. The dogs would have to complete the journey in less than a quarter of the normal time. So the journey began on the night of January 27th. The first musher left with his team of 11 dogs and the temperature dropped to negative 58 degrees. He developed hypothermia, and by the time he had completed his 52-mile leg, three of his dogs were dead. The serum then made its way from one musher to the next. Some dogs collapsed from frostbite. One musher had to hook up to the harness and pull his own sled. One musher got hit with an an 80-mile-an-hour gust of wind as a storm came in. His sled flipped, and he had to take off his gloves to dig the serum out of the snow, and he got frostbite on his hands. This powerful storm that ripped over Alaska brought the wind chill down to negative 85 degrees. And then one of the mushers made a dangerous drive across the Norton Sound with his lead dog, Togo, navigating the way in the blinding storm. So it was, they, he could not see it all. It was 100% up to this dog to find his way across this sound. And then Balto led the last dog sled team into Nome with the precious serum. Altogether, it took them only five and a half days, and the entire town was saved. The men who led these dog sled teams They saw the desperate need. They saw the helplessness of the people who were dying in Nome. They had compassion, and that compassion moved them. And they saved that town. 
And what a joy they must have felt to have been part of that rescue mission. Well, Jesus is also on a rescue mission here in Matthew 9, and we're going to read in verse 35. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is going throughout all the cities and villages. He's going from town to town, and he's doing two things. He's proclaiming the gospel, and he is healing the sick. And I love this picture of Jesus. Think about him coming into these towns. Everyone gets healed. And then proclaiming the gospel that they can be forgiven of their sins. He is bringing joy and blessing and wholeness everywhere he goes. And this is also what the early church does in Acts. They're, they're preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus is on a mission. Why? Why is he on this mission? Because people are harassed and helpless. This is verse 36. Like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are extremely temperamental and vulnerable creatures. They're constantly being harassed and picked off by predators with almost no way to defend themselves. And they even harass one another. Without a shepherd, they create a pecking order. They'll push each other off a nice tuft of grass and sometimes not let other sheep drink or even rest. The sheep can become anxious and not able to function. And without a shepherd, they blindly follow one another into bad decisions. They can't find food or water on their own, and it's not uncommon for them to starve or dehydrate. They are probably the clearest example of helpless creatures. Now, human babies are the most helpless creatures at birth, but they eventually are able to take care of themselves, at least in theory. But sheep remain helpless for the duration of their lives. And when Jesus sees these sheep, when he sees all the crowds in all the cities, his response is compassion. Now, the Greek word used here, which I can't pronounce, is much stronger than compassion. It means that when he saw the crowds, it was gut-wrenching. His, his heart went out to them. It, it broke his heart. And I love this about Jesus. He has great compassion on them. They have no shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're getting harassed and beat up. They're leading each other astray. They're being led to the slaughter. And Jesus is moved by this. It brings out compassion, great compassion in him. 
Oskar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party, and he ran a factory in Poland during World War II where he hired many Jews to run that factory. And as the war went on, Schindler began to notice the increasing treatment, bad treatment and harassment of the Jews. In the movie Schindler's List, there's this terrible scene where Schindler sees them liquidating the Krakow ghetto. They're pulling people out of their homes and killing them and and sending them to their death, to the death camps. And Schindler sees a little girl in a red coat. It's the only color in the entire movie. Everything's black and white. But he sees this little girl in her coat and she's just walking through as people are being killed. She's, she's stepping over bodies. And I believe it's just the, a creative way of showing that, that Schindler saw her. He saw this little girl. And in a later scene, he sees that her body, her little red coat on top of a cart being taken away. Oscar Schindler saw the Jews. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he had compassion. And that compassion moved him to do everything in his power to save them. Jesus had compassion when he saw the lost sheep in all the towns of Israel. He saw them. And it moved him. Jesus had eyes to see people that were being harassed. Do we? I often don't have eyes to see that people are lost or or harassed. I'm too busy thinking about myself. Commentator Charles Price says, compassion comes from seeing people in their true state. Praying for compassion is not likely to be very effective. Opening our eyes to see people as they really are is the true source of compassion. Brothers and sisters, non-Christians are lost and they are helpless. And Jesus saw them in their true state that they were separated from God and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Do we see them in their true state? There are people all around us who don't know Jesus. And the enemy is harassing them night and day. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, they are being deceived. People all around us are hurting. They're anxious and depressed and dejected and lonely and suicidal. They're being funneled down a path of destruction, deceived into thinking that the things of this world will bring them joy. But instead, they live in pain and sorrow and hopelessness, and they're helpless. They're trapped. They they can't get out. They can't break their chains. They can't save themselves. When Jesus saw this, His compassion welled up inside of him. Do we have compassion when we see the lost? Does it break your heart 
Is it gut-wrenching? It's often not for me. I often don't see the lost. Or worse, I can see them as a problem. I can look down on people whose lives are messed up. I can view them as not worth the effort. I can see them as the enemy. But Jesus doesn't see them this way. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see you this way? He sees the lost sheep, and he sees them with compassion. But there's another problem besides the fact that people are harassed and helpless. There is a major problem. We don't have enough people to help them. The other problem is that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's verse 37. The problem isn't that the harvest is plentiful. We usually want a plentiful harvest, and if there isn't anything to harvest, that's an even bigger problem. But this big harvest is the lost sheep that need to be rescued. It's the lost men and women who need to hear the gospel. The problem that Jesus highlights is not the harvest. There's plenty to harvest. It's that we don't have enough people to do the work. We, we don't have enough workers. There aren't enough people in the fields. The crop is going to die. People are going to die. And Jesus wants to help them. Now, Jesus switches analogies here. He could have stuck with the sheep and the need to rescue them, but he switches to a huge field that can't be harvested. This is a major tragedy. Bringing in a great harvest is supposed to be a time of celebration, a time of joy and blessing, but a harvest that's wasted and dies, it's cause for great sorrow and mourning. I read recently about one farmer in California that had to allow millions of strawberries to rot because there was no one to pick them. Another farmer was forced to plow 300,000 heads of fresh lettuce into the ground because there was no one to pick them. Do you see the massive harvest all around you? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, classmates, waitresses, people at the gym, at the grocery store, at the bank, at Starbucks, your mechanic, your hairdresser, your mailman. There are plenty of lost people. We have not run out of them. There are non-Christians all around us. It's a huge harvest field. And the heart of Christ is to help them. And he wants you to help him with this harvest. We can make a difference in this. You can almost hear Jesus encouraging us, saying you can do this. Uh, there's a man that recently came through our bridge course. His name is Romeo. And Romeo was an atheist. And he was an aggressive atheist. He would always try to plant seeds of doubt whenever he met any Christians. Even with his own son, who was a Christian and was coming to our church, he would plant, they would have these debates, and he'd plant all these seeds of doubt. And then his son would come to church, and then he'd come back, and they'd continue these debates. Well, his son invited him to the bridge course. And Romeo thought, oh, that could be a good opportunity for me to plant some more seeds of doubt. Well, 
God had a different plan for Romeo. And as he came week after week hearing the good news of the gospel, the power of the gospel penetrated his defenses and he came to know Christ. And one of the things he said was that he cannot get over this idea of grace, that God would forgive us apart from our works. And he said all he does would just write down the word grace and doodle it and write, I don't know what they are, like acronyms and little crossword puzzles. And he just kept writing about the word grace. He was amazed by grace. Are you amazed by grace? We should be amazed by grace. And guys, we can tell people about this grace. We can show people how they can be rescued. We can take them to the good shepherd. We just need to join Jesus in the fields. God wants to use us to rescue people who are lost. Now, I know this is hard. And I know it is so easy to feel guilty and condemned. We all feel like failures when it comes to this, don't we? But let's not let the flesh condemn us and convince us that we'll never change. Let's not ignore what God is trying to do this morning. Conviction is a gift from God, and so is repentance. God is eager to forgive us and to change us. He doesn't just leave us where we are. He changes us and conforms us into the image of Christ. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing what God wants us to be like. And we're not on our own. We have the Father and the Son and the Spirit working in us to help us become more like Christ. And in this passage, good news, Jesus tells us, What to do? Verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest field. So I have just two simple points. Number one, pray. Now, please note who we're praying to. We are praying to the Lord of the harvest. That means he's the one that's in charge of the harvest. He is overseeing the whole thing. We are not in charge. It's not up to us to do this on our own. God is the key in evangelism, and that's good news. We don't have to put undue pressure on ourselves or think that it's all up to us. It's not. It's up to God to bring these lost sheep into the fold. Now, we do have a role to play, an important role. We're called to befriend the lost, and to share the message of the gospel. We have to get to work in the field, but God does the heavy lifting. He's behind everything that we want to see happen. We need God to direct us to people, to give us favor with them, to open their hearts, to convict them of sin, to give them a clear understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ on the cross. We need God to regenerate them, to give them the gift of faith and repentance and to save them. We can't do any of that. Which is why we need to pray. It's why prayer is so critical. It's why Jesus says we should pray to the Lord of the harvest, to the Father. And it's why Jesus says we should pray earnestly. We should pray fervently. And this is where spending time with non-Christians and seeing how lost they are will help us. It will produce compassion, which in turn will naturally lead to prayer. 
One of my favorite evangelistic quotes of all time is by a guy named Mark McCloskey. He says this. If you want to develop a burden for the lost, do you want to develop a burden for the lost? Do you guys want to do that? Yeah? Here's how you do it. Go out and talk to the lost and find out how lost they are. Spending time with those who don't know the Lord will give us a burden for the lost, and it will fuel our prayers. It's like praying for an orphan that you are sponsoring in Africa. So our family would pray periodically for the kids that we sponsored through Covenant Mercies, but when I traveled to Zambia and I saw the little girl that we sponsored, a little girl named Prudence, and saw where she lived and what her life was like, I felt deep compassion. And it compelled me to pray in ways that I never... I actually cried all over this poor little girl, this big Mzungu, that's what they call us, right? Mzungu, right? Katel, is that what where you would say that? There's a whole room full of Mzungus, right? So this big Mzungu is like crying all over this poor little girl who doesn't know what's happening, you know? <laughs> but it just, it just moved me so deeply to see little prudence. And it compelled me to pray. It's the same with the lost. Spend time with them. Do you spend time with people who don't know Christ? Please, spend time with them. And you will pray for them, I promise you. And you will pray earnestly. But what do you pray? Well, first, just pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest field. That the one who is sovereign in salvation will send workers into this harvest. This passage is emphasizing the need for labors. Jesus is in the middle of the harvest and he wants us to join him. The problem is not with the harassed sheep that are lost and running away from God or the availability of ripe wheat, which is the readiness of people to hear and receive the gospel. It's that we don't have enough workers We don't have enough labors to get into the fields. We don't have enough Christians who will do the hard work of reaching the lost. We don't have enough Christians who are willing to sacrifice to reach men and women with the gospel. So we have to pray. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the mission? Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for evangelists and missionaries? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? So that's point one is pray. Point two, go. Go. It's not enough to just see this need. It's not enough to just feel compassion or even to just pray. We must go. Prayer leads to going. It's not an option for us as followers of Christ to keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. We have to reach out to the lost, not just send someone else, not just the bold people, not just the extroverted people, not just the mature Christians, not just the gifted evangelists or those on the mission field, but us. Now, where do I get this from? I get this from chapter 10. Notice that Jesus didn't just set up a series of prayer meetings to pray for the lost. He immediately sends out the disciples to do what he's been doing. 
Jesus didn't intend to be the only one in the harvest field. He always intended for his followers to do the harvesting. He hinted at this in chapter 4 when he said, I will make you fishers of men. There is a significant transition that is taking place here in chapter 10. Jesus has been the one doing all of the ministry. He's the one preaching the gospel and teaching and healing sick. He's out front and the disciples are bringing up the rear. Okay, so their job up to this point has been more crowd control. They're kind of carrying the bags. They're kind of like the bench players on an NBA team. Have you ever seen these guys? They're in charge of hype. So if like somebody slam dunks it, they have to jump up and go, whoa, and they always hold each other back. Their job is basically to hold each other back and scream and yell. That's what these disciples are doing, right? Jesus like heals somebody or raises somebody, whoa, and they hold each other back and hold the crowd back. That's all they're doing right now. But things change. In chapter 10, there is a huge transfer, a passing of the baton. Jesus was the one doing all the ministry, and now Jesus sends them to do the ministry. The disciples are an answer to prayer, specifically his prayer to send laborers into his harvest field. Oh, great, now we have 12. Praise God, the prayer's answered. And we have 12 disciples that we're sending into this harvest. Now, you might object because you're saying, well, listen, these are the 12 disciples. I mean, these guys are apostles. Some of these guys wrote scripture. I mean, these are the all-stars and I'm not. Well, they're actually not the all-stars. They're nothing special. One commentator said that the picture of them is sheer ordinariness. That they are the unspectacular, I love this sentence, the unspectacular raw material that God loves to work with. Aren't you glad that God loves to work with unspectacular raw material? And if you're still not convinced, in Luke chapter 10, after sending out the 12, he sends out the 72. So if the disciples were the bench warmers, these guys are the D-League. They're just regular old followers of Christ. We don't even know their names. You know why? Because they're us. Because that's us. It's because all followers of Christ are called to help others become followers of Christ. But it ain't gonna be that easy. Uh, when we finish our bridge course, we do this thing called the bridge study. It's just a follow-up to the bridge course. And one time we had this guy in there, and I don't think he had become a Christian. He was kind of a blue-collar guy, a little bit more on the rough side. And at the end of the bridge study, I said, his name was Bill, I said, so Bill, are, are you going to be going to church? Because we talk about that at the last bridge study and, and transitioning people to church. I said, Bill, are you, you going to be going to church? And he goes, well, it ain't going to be that easy. And I was like, really? Oh, why is that, Bill? And he goes, well, spring and all. And he just, man, I don't know, he had to mow and mulch and stuff like that. But that phrase, it ain't going to be that easy, became very important around my house. Like I would ask my boys, I'd say, hey, are you guys going to mow the lawn? they go, well, it ain't going to be that easy. <laughs> when it comes to evangelism, it ain't going to be that easy. As we get into chapter 10, Jesus tells us about a gathering storm. Jesus is going to take the brunt of this storm. The opposition will be intense and unrelenting. Jesus will experience trials and resistance and violence until the end, until they finally get him and have their way with him. And that is all a part of his calling and his mission. And it's true for us as well. Like Jesus, we will be opposed 
in our mission to reach the lost. And it's getting worse. The message of the gospel that we're sinners that deserve hell and can only be saved through the death of Christ is not a popular message. In fact, everything we believe is now basically offensive. We've lost whatever popularity we at one time had. We are increasingly seen as hateful, unethical, and oppressive. And the opposition is growing. Which should not surprise us. Jesus actually prepared us for this in Matthew 10. Let's look through a couple of these verses. I'm just gonna bounce through this quickly. So Jesus calls the 12 disciples and sends them out. Look at verse seven. He says, and proclaim as you go. So they're proclaiming the message, verse eight, and heal the sick. So there it is, proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. And then in verse 14, it says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, hey, wait a second, some people are not going to receive us? Some people are not gonna listen to our words? There's, wait, Jesus, I, I didn't know there's gonna be resistance here. And then remember, this is the baton being passed. He's preparing them to go out. Note what he's saying to them. Look at verse 16. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this has got to be the worst motivational speech in the history. Like, and I think the disciples are like excited, like, okay, did you know we were going out? Yeah, I didn't know. But what are we gonna do? I don't know, but let's, okay, Jesus like, okay, everybody get in here on the count of three, sheep among wolves. Okay, ready? One, two, three, sheep among wolves, right? Sheep among wolves, let's, sheep, sheep, wait, what? Sheep among wolves? I did some research on this years ago. I forget what it was. It was like sheep have like 16 teeth. Wolves have like 38. A sheep runs this fast. A wolf's like three teeth. Like th- this is not a competition. Jesus is basically saying, you're dead meat. I am sending you out as a hot lunch for these wolves. I mean, this is not encouraging. And then look at what he says in verse 17. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings. We're gonna, we're gonna be flogged for this mission? And then it gets worse, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. What? Brother will deliver brother over to death. and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Do you want to be part of the mission? Does this sound exciting and fun? You're going to be hated by all. This is what Jesus, this is how Jesus is preparing him. You are going to be hated by all for my namesake. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now you're a fugitive. You're a fugitive now. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. What do you mean have no fear of them? How can he say this? He just told us we're gonna be flogged, we're gonna be dragged, we're gonna be hated. Our own family members are gonna turn against us and hate us. We're gonna be fugitive. Hey, don't worry about it. Have no fear. How can he say this? Well, verse 28 tells us, 
Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, I see what Jesus is doing. He's giving us an eternal perspective now. He's saying, you can sacrifice greatly here because of what I'm preparing for you there. Do you see that? He, he lifts our eyes off of this earth and puts them on eternity. And then he says in verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this is not optional. It's not optional for some people to do this and some to not. No, we must acknowledge him and we cannot deny him. And then verse 34, he continues, do not think that I've come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, he has come to bring peace between us and God, right? Romans 5, that we're reconciled. He brings peace between us and God, a vertical peace, but not a horizontal peace, not with others. It's going to be a fight. Do you see that? It's going to be a battle. Uh, He's saying, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. In other words, you have to put the mission above your family. You have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to die. Now, when I was studying Matthew 10, I'm just like, yikes. When I became a Christian, I didn't know I was signing up for this. I mean, it feels like I was signing up for the Cub Scouts and I ended up on Paris Island for the Marine Corps boot camp. (laughs) When you became a Christian, you may not have realized it, but you signed up for a mission to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. And as we seek to carry out that mission, we will meet with opposition. Like Jesus, we will be opposed. This doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it means we're doing something right. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So church, we have to be prepared for this. If we're gonna be faithful stewards of the gospel message, if we're gonna be a church that reaches into the darkness, we have to be able to absorb the blows of the opposition. Like boxers, we have to be able to take some hits. It's okay if you get hit. The Rocky movies are some of my favorite movies, and spoiler alert, every movie is basically about Rocky being beat to a pulp, taking hits, and then getting up at the end and winning. One of my favorite quotes, I think it's in Balboa, which I don't know, it might be number 43, I don't know what number movie it is. But he says this to his son, he says, it ain't about how hard you can hit, And I have some Italian in me, 16%. This is why I can do this effectively. (laughs) He says, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And there's a lot of truth in that. 
brothers and sisters, we have to be able to take a hit and keep moving forward with the gospel of Christ. It's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if ever anybody should despise us for Christ's sake, let us not count it hard, but let us be willing to bear scorn and contempt for him. Let us say to ourselves, then did they spit in his face. What then if they also spit in mine? If they do, I will hail reproach and welcome shame since it comes upon me for his dear sake. See that wretch is about to spit in Christ's face. Put your cheek forward that you may catch that spittle upon your face that it fall not upon him again. For as he was put to such terrible shame, everyone who has been redeemed with his precious blood ought to count it an honor to be a partaker of the shame if by any means we may screen him from being further despised and rejected of men. There is a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List when Schindler must flee the country after saving over 1,100 Jews. He had risked his life time and time again. He gave the equivalent of more than $100 million of his own money to rescue as many Jewish men, women, and children as he could. And in this final scene, he is there with all 1,100 people. He's having to escape the country. He's there with his friend, Ithac Stern. And Schindler says, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I just, I could have got more. And Ithac says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. And he says, if I made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. If I just, there will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. Schindler says, this car, Goth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? 10 people right there, 10 people, 10 more people. And then he removes the Nazi pin from his lapel. And he says, this pin, two people, this is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for at least one. One more person. A person stern for this. And he breaks down sobbing. And he says, I could have gotten one more person. And I didn't. And I, I didn't. Oscar Schindler saw the Jewish people in their desperate plight. He sacrificed so much to save so many. He was like Christ in this. But he was right. He didn't give everything. Jesus did. He did give everything. Jesus sacrificed his life. When Jesus saw us in our lost condition as we were barreling toward hell, storing up wrath for the day of judgment, careening toward an eternity of suffering, he had compassion. It was gut-wrenching for him. And so he left his throne above. He became one of us. He became the Son of Man. He clothed himself in flesh so that his flesh could be pierced, so that his body could take our curse and absorb our punishment. He gave everything, even his life, 
to save us from hell. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Yes, it is dangerous. Yes, it is scary. But Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us boldness to overcome our fears so that we can reach the lost with the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you gave everything for us. Thank you that you came to this earth and that you absorbed so much opposition. You absorbed the blows. You absorbed the hatred. You absorbed the beating. You absorbed the nails so that we could be saved. Lord, it amazes us that given our sin and rebellion, that you had compassion on us. That you saw us and it was gut-wrenching. And you sacrificed everything to save us. I pray that you would give us as a church eyes to see what you see. That we would see the lost. That it would be gut-wrenching for us. That we would have compassion. And that you would give us courage to befriend the lost and to share the good news of the gospel. That they might come to know this mercy too. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Jim Donahue given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.